Welcome to the 42 to Doomsday podcast. In this latest episode, Mark and I host special guest Richard Molesworth to chat about his latest book. While writing prolifically about the history of Doctor Who, Richard has also been a member of the Doctor Who restoration team, contributing to the VHS, DVD, and now Blu-ray Rangers. Richard's extensive research into the history of the show has borne fruit in the form of Wiped, Doctor Who's missing episodes, Robert Holmes' A Life in Words, and now his latest, soon-to-be-released book, The John Nathan Turner Doctor Who Production Diary, 1979 to 1990, coming soon from Telos Publishing. Richard, welcome. Thank you. Hello, Mark. Hello, uh, Rob. Richard, uh, again, welcome to the podcast. And uh, Mark and I have had a, had a chance to uh, a look over your book, and it's a, a very extensive, very in-depth look into the production process uh, during John Nathan Turner's uh, reign. Um, your introduction mentions uh, that during lockdown, uh, it, that you know that particular period of your life helped stimulate you to write the book. Um, what was that like, you know, living in lockdown and coming up with or, you know, deciding to write the book? I mean, how did you go about it, uh, given the circumstances at that time? I mean, it was all rather depressing. I don't know how badly um, Australia was affected by COVID. I think you kept quite um, out of it for quite a long time, from what I understand. But here in the UK, it went from bad to worse very quickly in February and March 2020. And it very it became very apparent in middle of March. I mean, even before there was an official lockdown, that a lockdown was going to be looming. And at the time, there was just no idea of how long it would continue. You know, COVID was still very new. There wasn't a vaccine. There was no end game. We were looking at potentially all sorts of possibilities. We were forbade from socialising or seeing friends and family. And I thought, I'm going to go very, very mad very, very quickly if I don't do something to occupy my time and try and keep myself sane. Mm. As you mentioned, I've, I've written a couple of books previously, know full well what it entails to write a book. And it's not something I did lightly because it's a lot of work and it's soul-destroying at times when you're trying to get things together. I, you know, I don't want to paint the picture of an overwrought artist here but um, it, it's it's a lot of work to put a book together but I thought you know I could be like this in this situation for for months possibly years even so let's use the time profitably if if, if it's all possible it was something I'd been toying with as a project for quite some time I, I'd thought to myself you know we've got a lot of John's paperwork which it was all in bits you know I thought if somebody can sit down and, and assemble all this together and make a coherent chronological history of what was going on when it would offer a very uh, interesting insight I thought into how Doctor Who was made when John was producer uh, and maybe give some insights as to why John made a few of the decisions he did and what was going on in the production office in in the 80s you know a, a lot of stories have come out and there's a lot of controversy about John's time uh, which we'll probably touch on later but for some reason I just thought that would be a good project to get my teeth into so I went for it. A lot of the paperwork that John left after he passed away uh, and Gary passed away went to a good friend of um, mine and Paul Venice's and people on the restoration team a, a lovely chap called Stephen Cramford and he'd very kindly lent all the paperwork to us to to use as we saw fit on the Blu-ray and DVD ranges before the Blu-rays. So it was just a question of um, going through forensically everything in the folders and files. And how did you sort that information out? I mean, you've got obviously a 10-year reign there of John's time on the program. Did you basically get each piece of paper and have a section in your house where it's like one quarter of the rooms in 1979 to 80 and sort of progress it that way? Or how did you sort of sift through it all and work out that chronology? 
It was a bit more 21st century than that. I'd scanned a lot of the documents as to, into PDF files you know, over the years, and um, most of them were there sitting on the laptop or on the computer. And it was just a question of going through them and extracting all the information and, and putting it into a chronological list, if you like, a diary. What really made me sit down and think this would be a good project in the first place was going through something I thought would be very, very uninteresting, and that was John's expense claims. Yes. You know, he got loads and loads of, of just very boring BBC expense claim forms. But then I started to notice he was logging who he was seeing and why he, not why he was seeing them, but what he was doing. So, you know, I thought, oh, right, he went to see Elizabeth Sladen on this date and he went, he took a taxi to see Peter Davison on this date. And all of a sudden you can see what he was doing and when, simply by tracking who he was having meetings with and paying for lunches for. Was he a gregarious person by nature or was it the nature of the job that you know required him to be out and about as much as he was because looking at uh, the information that you've put together he's in and out of the office seemingly on a constant basis over those you know uh, 10 years did either of you ever meet john no No, i I know he only visited australia the once while he was producer in 84 i think yes that's right no he went to sydney not we were in melbourne i met him a number of times mainly after he'd left um, the BBC. And Gregarious was exactly what John was like. He, he was a person who, who liked to just sit down and have a natter with people, um, have a few drinks, exchange tawdry bits of showbiz gossip, tell some really bad jokes and just have a good time. He was a very, very gregarious chap. Now, I can't speak for what he was like in his professional life and how that might have translated, but it wouldn't surprise me if he was more or less the same. So just to give the listeners some context for the times, at the time John was appointed producer, what was the state of the show in 1979? It depends on what your point of view is. I thought it was very healthy as a viewer. I joined the Doctor Who Appreciation Society in 1982 and reading the comments in the TARDIS fanzines and various other publications, I was quite shocked to see how much scorn and derision organised fandom were aiming at the show under Graham Williams and Tom Baker's years under him, all of which I was pretty blind to as a non-fan. From the BBC's perspective, I think they didn't have a problem at all with Doctor Who. It was very, very healthy in the ratings. They particularly liked Tom Baker. He was good for the BBC. He was good for Doctor Who. So I think they were more than happy with Doctor Who the way it was under Graham Williams. And, you know, I certainly thought the programme was doing... It wasn't as good as it had been. Everybody says that about Doctor Who, or it used to be better back when blah, blah, blah. But I didn't think there were any causes for concern. And obviously, John was brought in because Graham had just had enough of trying to get the show made on time and to budget. He'd been doing it for three years, and I think he'd found it increasingly more frustrating, um, especially in the the situation we had in the UK in the late 70s when inflation was spiralling excessively. You know, the BBC used to fix the budgets at the start of the financial year. So from 1st of April through to 30th of March, that's your, your financial year, that's your production year, I think. And you're given your budget on day one for that 12 months. And when six months down the line that budget has reduced in real terms by 10 percent and by the end of the 12 months it could be as little as down as much as 15 or 20 percent 
you really are fighting a losing battle. And when JNT was selected as producer, did Graham McDonald have any other contenders in mind or was JNT the man for the job at that time? I don't actually know the answer to that question, in all honesty. I've heard Mm. different accounts from different people. It does strike me as odd, though, that Verity Lambert had never produced before she became producer of Doctor Who. And oddly, I don't think Barry Letts had. He'd been directing, but I don't think he'd done much in the way of producing. And I think Graham Williams was more of a script editor than he was a producer. And and that's where Philip Hinchcliffe's early years were, you know, in the script departments. So John had definitely come through a different route or a different thought process. Um, He'd had no real formal training in in scripting and how scripts worked. And that seemed to be the backbone of of how, you know, the the previous couple of producers had been appointed. And Barry Letts was a very competent and well-regarded director and had been an actor. So I don't think there's ever a... You know, this is what we need for a producer, especially a Doctor Who producer. Mm. But John did break the mould a little bit. He was an unusual choice, I think. Whether that was because there were no other ideal candidates or because um, Graham MacDonald did think that John would thrive if he was given the opportunity, I wouldn't like to offer an opinion. The appointment of Barry Letts is... Uh... I believe the term was executive producer. Does that indicate that Graham McDonald had doubts about JNT, or was it simply that JNT may not have had, you know, the right uh, "quote unquote" experience and needed just a bit of a guiding hand during his first year? I think the truth might lie somewhere in the middle. I think Graham McDonald thought that somebody needed to be um, a bit more hands-on with Doctor Who than he could as the head of department. Now, the head of department nominally was always the executive producer of Doctor Who, even if they weren't credited on screen. And I think Graham MacDonald felt that he, you know, he was able to work with Graham Williams and keep a very light touch in that respect. Perhaps he suspected that John might need a little bit more time and um, attention, certainly in the first few months of his producership, than he could devote himself. And has he didn't know much about Doctor Who, you know, by his own admission. And he had Barry Letts working in his department as a producer on the classic series at the time. He thought that that would be the the solution to the problem. I don't necessarily think that he was concerned about John's lack of experience, although that might well have been a factor. And um, I, I think ultimately Graham had the right instinct in doing that with Barry Letts because John certainly to begin with, did make a few schoolboy errors and did have problems in in the early days of actually getting a production into the studio and out again in the allocated time, which was always the bottom line with the BBC. Um, Back in those days, you had your studio uh, blocks and you had to finish recording at 10 o'clock, no questions on every studio day, whether you had two days or three days in the studio block. Not the most creative of environments to have to work in, but those the statutes that the BBC laid down to every production, be it Doctor Who or Bergerac or Howard's Way or Last of the Summer Wine or whatever else they were making at the time, everyone had to play by the same rules. And uh, John did have problems to begin with. You know, the leisure hype is a car crash of a production, really. <laughs> I, I did start to wince uh, at the constant, at, at least at the beginning of his uh, tenure, uh, his the requirement for him, uh, JNT, to have to explain 
to Graham McDonald and then later David Reid about why he was five minutes over or seven minutes over or 15 minutes over. It, it, it is an interesting way that the BBC made television back in the day. And I suppose the people involved in television then would uh, would love to grab with both hands the way TV is made today, I suppose. Yeah, the, the flexibility that modern TV and the, you know, the, the current Doctor Who production team have to, to make the show and to work the hours they they want to be able to get the best out of the actors and the the crew and the cast and the locations and everything you know it's a it's a luxury that that the any of the classic series producers never had maybe it's a shame just going back to your comment about john's all the memos that john sent i mean i think it was just a a bbc policy if you overrun you have to be accountable and your line manager your head of department would want you know in writing a little note to say why you'd overrun on a particular day. Do you know if John sort of felt any sort of slight that Barry Letts was sort of appointed to oversee his first year of production, do you know? Or was he actually sort of happy to have a bit of a a guiding hand? I think he found Barry to be a good sounding board, although I do think maybe John did resent having Barry put in charge of him, if if you like. Hmm. You know, that wasn't standard BBC policy, and I don't know that... I can think off the top of my head of any other programmes that it happened with or, or new producers. So I think his nose could have been put out of joint a little bit. He certainly made use of Barry and Barry was very, very helpful towards John, certainly in terms of sitting down and um, reading the scripts that John and his script editors had, had commissioned and offering very good sound advice on them. But I didn't really go too much into detail in the book about what Barry was doing because it's not a book about Barry, it's a book about yeah, John. exactly. Mm-hmm. Barry, let's took over the, the production of the series in 1969-70. He brought many innovations to the, the production schedule and, and and the way they did things, especially around you know CSO and the way they sort of scheduled things, having two-week cycles and things like that. Did JMT sort of bring any innovations or anything new to, to the way that he produced a program which sort of made him sort of stand apart from some of his uh, peers and, and his predecessors? Or did he sort of just follow the, the usual production regime that the, the BBC used to churn out programs? I, I think John tinkered around the edges. He, I mean, there was the obvious things. He changed the title sequence. He changed the theme music. In terms of the actual productions, I think under Graham Williams they'd started having what they used to call gallery only days which was a, a, a cheap way of doing um, video effects like canines blaster and explosions and rays and things like that mm. um, which were cost effective they were still booking the, the studio but only the the gallery part they got the all the videos that they'd recorded and they overlaid all the effects onto them they were still doing essentially um, a, an episode a day sometimes uh, it was broken up a little bit and, and taken out of order but a lot of John's productions you can see they're starting to really break down um, the order that they record scenes to make optimum use of sets um, and have different set constructions on different studio blocks so that they could you know, get everything in the console room done in, in one day and everything in say the the tachyon generator set in the leisure hive on another day and try and break up the, the the story into blocks that they could you know film economically but they were still looking at for a four-part story um five studio days and a couple of days location filming if you didn't have location filming you might get a sixth studio day and it was two weeks rehearsal two or three days in the studio two more weeks rehearsal two or three days in the studio 
uh, um, and it, it was like that from his first story in 79 to his last in 1989. And that mode of production, that, that was typical for, for the BBC and, and, and the ITV networks, is that right? I'm not too sure about ITV. I mean, they had obviously different studios, different practices, mm. different unions, different working hours. Um, but the BBC, yes, if it was made at TV Central or even at Pebble Mill, like Horror of Fang Rock was, that wasn't one of John's productions. But yeah, it was all, always the same same sort of setup. I mean, Blake Seven, for instance, they they had more more production blocks really than story blocks. So they used to, you know, do a lot of filming in one batch, then a lot of studio in one batch. It wasn't, you know, uh, they they mixed and matched the stories around. Whereas Doctor Who, a story was in production, and then another story was in a production, and then another story was in production. So series like Blake Seven and presumably things like Z Cars and Softly Softly, they would have a bit more flexibility in their studio blocks. Reading through your book, the production process on Doctor Who does seem very linear. Uh, in terms of the appointment of directors for a set period of time and working consecutively. Um, there was no effort to make things a bit more, I suppose, with a limited cast, it would be difficult, but there was no effort to make things a little bit more concurrent or were they doing that anyway? Television was linear, but full stop. I mean, there was no, mm-hmm. all the editing was linear. You know, I, I sat in an edit suite with a two-inch tape and you you had two or three two-inch tapes. That was the you got to the bit you wanted to record onto your master, you played that bit out, then you got to the next bit. There was no going back and inserting stuff. You had to do it scene from scene one to scene 400 and put each scene in in order. And that that's how production was as well. So, you know, effectively a director would come in, the script had already been commissioned. The first thing they'd do is sit down, read the scripts, go through with the script editor, then get the heads of department in, the costume, the makeup, the visual effects, the design department, work out what sets and what costumes and how many casts they could afford and how many extras and would they need any pre-filming. And that had to be done for, for each and every story. If there was, you know, seven, six, five, four, three stories a year, um, it all had to follow that 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 linear um production process and they you know they all overlapped a little bit so whilst one director was you know in in pre-production another story could be in rehearsals and uh, another story was due to go into the studio in a few months time and another story could be editing and it all overlapped over a 52 week period of production so it was in that regard then was was john nathan turner a good manager of the production process i mean obviously early on there were you know, problems, as you mentioned, with, with the leisure hive. But in terms of once he was in harness and sort of trotting along, was John uh, a good manager of people around him and, and getting things done relatively on time? I think John, to, the one thing you can say about John, he knew how the BBC system worked oh. and he knew how to, you know, wriggle around the shortcuts to the best of the program's advantage. Um and he knew who to phone and when to phone and how to get things done. And I think once he got over his initial problems with the Leisure Hive in the first few productions of season 18, which was a learning curve, was to be expected, I suppose, um, he, he got into a routine um, where he could manage things quite effectively. Um, and I think that was his strength. He, as, as a producer getting things done he was great i don't think he had much of a an insight into how stories work and what makes a good story and what makes a poor story um and i think his way of choosing directors was 
more to do with can they finish on time and on budget rather than can they make a good piece of television. Mm. Um, so he certainly had his strengths and I think his ability to produce with a small p a television program was good. Creatively, I think he had problems, but from a production point of view, it was pretty sound, I would say. However, he was very volatile as well, as you probably gathered yes. from certain uh, parts <laughs> of the book. Yes. If he had a problem with somebody, he had a problem with them, and that problem could have repercussions that would affect the programme. And I can't really think of too many examples prior to John becoming producer of that happening in Doctor Who's history. It did happen. They were kept very much in the background. Was John's uh, volatility sometimes a product of the man himself? Or was it more to do with the pressures of the job or was it really a combination of both? Because we saw in the book and, you know, a, a number of times where John would blow up and it would cost him, you know, a working relationship with someone who would have, had they stayed on, uh, a, you know, been to the benefit of the series. I think John could be volatile and I do think his refusal to, uh, I wouldn't say back down, but to sit back breathe in and out 10 times and have a good think about what was going on. Perhaps if he'd done that a bit more often, he wouldn't have exploded <laughs> as yeah. often as he did. Yeah. He wouldn't have had so many confrontations um, and he could have prevented situations uh, that he could have possibly have walked away from. And I think it was more about saving face or appearing weak. John, once he'd backed himself into a corner, couldn't really find a way to get out of it without having... Um, you know, that explosion and, you know, you're on my hit list for life and you'll never work on this programme again. And once he'd gone down that route, he, he couldn't really bring himself to draw back from it, I don't think. There was a lot of pressure and there are um, times, especially when Andrew Cartmel's there, where I think he does fly off the handle, but there were things going on in his private life with his parents that explained some of that. It wasn't just the, the pressure of being the producer of Doctor Who, but, you know, the everyday pressures of life that we all have to deal with, family and finances and other things that sometimes can cloud your judgment when they really shouldn't. But John was as human as the next man. Certainly one of John's strengths was his ability to garner publicity for the for the, for the the show. I, I was reading a couple of days ago um, the press contingent that followed them to Amsterdam <laughs> while filming uh, Ark of Infinity. John seems to have been strong in or interested in publicity for the show and also merchandise and, and, and marketing the show, you know, across the, you know, especially in America. Um, was that typical of uh, BBC producers at the time or were they more, were the, were the rest of them working at the BBC more interested in just producing television and not necessarily flying out to America seemingly every weekend? Well, when it comes to publicity, getting column inches in the tabloids um, John was very mindful of that and I certainly think he paid more attention to it than the average BBC producer of the time um, I mean don't forget the BBC did have a press office and it was the press officer's um, job to actually go out and sell the stories to the papers and and, oh. and do all that and, and John got a, a bit more involved than um, some of his contemporaries I think ever did as you say going to Amsterdam and bringing along um, you know, reporters and photographers from four or five different uh, Fleet Street newspapers. Um, it was a bit of a coup, but it, it kind of detracted from what John should be doing as his day job, I think. Mm. Mm. Um, 
which is to actually make the program and to set up photo opportunities. You know, he, and he did think long and hard about these. You know, when he went to Amsterdam for Arco Infinity, he made sure they packed Sarah Sutton's snake dance costume so that the, the they could have that photo call with Tegan and uh, Nissa in a snake dance outfit and Peter Davison all on the tandem. Um, when he did the press photo call for, I think it was Cursor Fenric, he didn't want the press to photo Sylvester in his new brown jacket so they packed the season 25 cream one and all of the press photos or a lot of them Sylvester's got his cream jacket on so he did think about things like that very carefully in terms of the conventions I think that's that's a different separate conversation really um you know they, they only really started up just as John took over as producer in, in oh. America um there had been a few Dwes events in in the UK since the late 70s, and they were becoming uh, far more prevalent in the early 80s. Uh, and John started attending those. But, um, you know, he flew out to Panopticon West in, I think it was 1981. And I think that opened his eyes to the potential um, of the American convention. And the American audience, there wasn't an audience that was like, Star Wars or Star Trek in America, but PBS had done a good job of of, of getting Doctor Who on air in a regular time slot in America. And then there was a small, by American standards, um, interest in the series, but that translates into many, many thousands of fans. And so the American conventions could almost from the, the outset be run on a commercial footing, which the British events never could do in the UK. Uh, and I certainly struggled, you know, up until this day. Yeah, that's right. One thing that I sort of struck me when I was reading the book was in some ways J&T was ahead of the curve in some ways, where when he got hold of the program, he was thinking about spin-off shows. He was trying to obtain, you know, co-production deals for filming in Australia and America. Now we sort of take for granted, don't we, really? And obviously the modern series. But back then, he obviously had that eye on, yes, trying to get the program's profile more visible than what it used to be and potentially getting some uh, overseas jaunts in could lift it. Well, I mean, John's the only classic series producer who ever got a Doctor Who spin-off into production Canine mm. Company, and uh, when I was doing the book, it did uh, how Canine Company was made. Well, okay, it wasn't the greatest of scripts, but it was a very competent production, and Elizabeth mm. Sladen's marvelous in it as a, you know she always was, um, and it did fantastic ratings. I think it got bigger ratings than um, season eighteen had got, and I think it might have got bigger ratings than the opening um, installment to season nineteen. So why it was never commissioned? It's a mystery. I never really got to the, the bottom of why it stalled. And obviously, John had aspirations for it beyond the, the single 50-minute pilot. Huh. Um, it, it, if anything, it, it probably got a bit bogged down in uh, a change of um, controllers, maybe. Um, not controllers, but head of head of departments. Um, and it kind of lost a bit of uh, impetus. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the overseas filming, I think John could see two benefits one it it made the program look a bit different for four weeks or six weeks wherever the story was set you know city of death um he he, he was the person that really made that work for graham williams and and that was a fantastic production um for the time and the budget that that went into it 
Um, but he was also looking for co-production money to boost his coffers. Um, and that's why he was looking to Australia for uh, maybe a couple of stories in the early 80s and why he was always looking to get a co-production deal with BBC um, Enterprises to do a story in America, um, which never nearly happened with the two doctors, but fell apart. Um, so I think he was he was coming at it from a number of angles and it, it could perhaps look like he was just just trying to do something that would make the, the, the programme stand out a little bit more. But mm. I, I think he had the best of intentions. We also need to talk about JNT's interest in merchandising. Pretty evident very early on that he's, you know, obviously chasing the deal, as it were, whether it's uh, getting himself a book deal very early on or ramping up the show's merchandising as well. Was his interest in this sort of driven by trying to expand the popularity of the show to get greater viewing figures? Or what was the sort of, you know, rationale for him? Well, I, I think he saw merchandising, A, it was free advertising. You know, if there were Doctor Who books in WH Smiths, it made people aware of Doctor Who and more likely to sit down and watch Doctor Who. If there was a very good um, Doctor Who exhibition in Blackpool or Longleat um, that presented the props and costumes in a very effective and dramatic way, as they often did, you know, the more people that would see those exhibitions, they're more likely to tune into the next series of Doctor Who. The the better quality that Doctor Who Weekly and Doctor Who Monthly were, um, again, it, it was just a, a shop window for the programme. Um, maybe, and I'm only conjecturing uh, here, if that's a word, if the commercial spin-offs were doing well, the Target books were selling, if Doctor Who Weekly's sales figures were going up, that was more money coming back into BBC Enterprises as a result of Doctor Who. And that could strengthen John's hand in tapping up BBC Enterprises for additional co-production money. You want mm. some monsters to show in your exhibitions? We'll build you some nice monsters, but can we have some money for the costumes, please? That sort of conversation, you know? In terms of these extracurricular activities, specifically uh, his interest in the American market, uh, you, you you point out in, the, in, in your book that um, that... Uh, excited some negative feelings from, from from British fandom. That aside, did John's trips to the uh, to the US and his interest in you know merchandising, so sort of things outside his you know immediate purview and the reason that he you know he was producer, did all those extra things tend to distract him from the main job? Did it impact on his ability to do his job? I mean, he was flying out on a Friday and coming back on a Sunday. Have you seen any evidence of any negative impacts on the production itself? There are two ways of looking at that. I mean, yes, they, those extracurricular activities did impact on the productions. Um, certainly when Revelation of the Daleks was in production, he was also hawking his um, pantomime that had Colin and Nicola appearing twice daily matinees and three times at weekends. So that impacted on their availability for rehearsals. Um, it impacted on where the location filming for the exteriors of Necros, you know, they had to be conducted close to where the theatre was that they were appearing in. There was an instance where I think he took Peter Davison to a convention and just after kinder, I can't remember off the top of my head if it was just after a studio recording or just after a rehearsal, but he was flying close to the wind um, in terms of his time management. Uh, as you say, going to a convention on a Friday, coming back jet lagged Monday morning and straight into work. And I know the perception of people like Eric Sayward is that they thought it was affecting uh, John's ability to produce to his best abilities whether it was or whether it wasn't, 
it was foisting discontent, shall we say. Did the, his activities outside the you know, the pr- production office earn him any commentary from his people he reported to, or did he sort of manage to fly under the radar in that regard? I think he tried his best to fly under the radar, and when <laughs> it was brought up, he would be, well, you know, I'm just promoting the series and that. I think where it did fall into areas of uh, possible conflict was when he was being paid to attend American conventions. I do touch on that a little bit, but um, certainly I think that might have crossed the line had it been known at the time, shall we say. And it's interesting that J&T, especially in the early to mid-80s, saw himself equally as important as a lead actor in the role, you know, by attending, obviously, the the conventions in the US and, and to a smaller extent, the UK. In your book, you know, he's proposing to Enterprises the first iteration of the Hartnell years, where he's proposing himself to present that uh, that production, setting himself into third opportunities, you know, whether it's an overseas jaunt or even in the Five Doctors ones, or and even, you know, casting and everything like that. Do you think fandom's early adulation of him contributed to this attitude, or or do you think it was just another way for him to try and promote the program and he saw himself as the best vessel to do it? John was a frustrated showman from the very mm. from the very start. I mean, if you've ever seen uh, Chris Chapman's very yes. um, excellent uh, biography of John, on, uh, I forget which Blu-ray it was now, was it? The season, season 26. Season 26. They all blur, yeah. blur into one for me. But, um, you know, that's, that's a magnificent oversight of John's personality and character. And demonstrates, I think, in in the early days, how much of a showman John was. So I think it did put that that did appeal to that part of his personality that he could get up on stage and uh, tell some shaggy dog stories or or be totally serious and have the um, the attention and the the, the um, interest of of an audience. Um, and I think he liked that. I mean, we all do when when. Uh, people like what we're doing i don't know that i mean obviously he saw himself as somebody that was capable of fronting something like a a video um project like uh like he was proposing for the early hartnell years with him as the host um and he'd certainly you know done a lot of stuff in america on on stage at the conventions there not so much in the uk to be honest he's far more of a performer for the american fans so i think that was just an aspect of of John's personality that, that the conventions brought to the fore. I don't think he necessarily saw himself as a star. And, you know, we've all seen, I do say, you know, a lot, don't I? We've all seen the photos <laughs> of, of John um, stood between a couple of co-stars mm. pointing at them with his fingers and John just liking a little memento to put on the office wall, you know, while we're here, while you've got your camera, mm. let's have one with me and the new doctor or me and the new companion or, something I can I can use just for my own fun. And there's still plenty of 40 and 50-year-old Doctor Who fans when they get together and having photo opportunities, have the fingers pointing at each other as a, a slight homage. When I was reading the book, it did debunk for me a number of myths. The, the vampire mutation, you know, turned sticks right for uh, season 15. I was uh, under the impression all four episodes are there and sitting on the shelf and uh, ready to go. It sounded like there's only one episode there that was actually available and they, they commissioned Terrence to do the rest. When you were going through the paperwork for this uh, book, what information that you uncovered while trawling through it was new to you? At the time, there were lots of things I thought, did I know this? Do I know this? Is this new? I don't know about you chaps, but it's very difficult sometimes to know when you find something new Mm. or if you're just finding something that you did know but had forgotten. 
or maybe it's just me getting old, but <laughs> I, I was forever finding little little bits of, of interesting trivia, which I thought, I never knew this before. The whole problem that John had with the Children in Need production team in 1980, where mm. they completely cocked things up for Tom Baker and for Lala Ward and for Peter Davison and... John had a real, real problem there. Little bits of, of trivia of uh, how he got the Generation game interested in doing some Doctor Who-related features, how he nearly got the fifth Doctor, Nyssa and Tegan, appearing in character in addition of It's a Knockout. Yes. Guys wouldn't know what It's a Knockout is, but <laughs> it's, it was a very big thing in the 80s and 70s in the UK. Lots of little things like that were, were always cropping up going back to them and rereading them. And it, it began to be very difficult to know where I first came across this information. So I'm, I'm quite gratified to, to hear that you were finding things that you thought you never knew before in the book, because I, I hope there will be a lot of things that a lot of people didn't know before in the book. Mm. Well, certainly the book is a compendium of, of, of information that uh, I think a lot of classic series fans will enjoy having in one one spot and I, I hope uh, you know it also um, attracts the the interest of news uh, fans who've come to the show via the news series because it is a a really fascinating historical window on on how television was produced uh, you know uh, 30 or 40 years ago uh, and on a lot of note one thing that I didn't really appreciate was John's uh, uh, love of the BBC bar after <laughs> studio recordings. Like yes. I, I began, I began to underline my my, uh, my printed out copy of your book every time there was a mention of the BBC bar, and I very quickly ran out of ink. That's very simply because John's always putting an expense claim through yes. for hospitality. <laughs> now it could be that um, it was just a convention. I, I think a lot of them do seem to appear on the first night of a studio recording, and I think it was just a question of right with ten o'clock. Drinks on me, I'll get the first round in. When he was meeting up with writers, they'd probably either initially go and meet in the production office or something, but then they'd go and have a more of a little social discussion somewhere, probably with the script editor in tow as well. It's hard to you know, know for certain who was there, but John was definitely right. I met this person and uh, we had a drink somewhere. <laughs> Richard, previous production teams, uh, there was generally a consistent tone to their particular eras. So if you look at uh, Hinchcliffe and Holmes, their three years together, they seem to work together in, in, in harness, in lockstep, and that era of the show has a definite feel from beginning to end. I've often thought that John Nathan Turner's time in the show, uh, there's different sub-eras within the, the, the larger era, and that is down to his script editors. Bidmead's time in the show has a particular tone. Eric Sayward's time has a particular tone. And Cartmill's time has a particular tone. Can you tell us a little bit about John's re working relationship with, you know, uh, Bidmead and Sayward and Cartmill in terms of, I suppose, the production process of the show and, and, and how it, 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 it all came together? Um, yeah, just to go back a little bit, I think under Graham Williams, he also had three script editors in just three years, if you recall. Yes. And there's not much you can say between them, although I do think season 17 with Douglas Adams is a slightly more unique season than the other two 
um, mm. of, of Graham's. But certainly, yes, um, there, uh, for me, there isn't a JNT era. There is the the JNT Bidmead era, the JNT Sayward era, and the JNT Cartmel era. And they're, they're all very, very different in, in how they present themselves, how the show was produced, how how the scripts were written. I think with, with Chris Bidmead, they had a very healthy respect for each other. Um, they were both learning the jobs from day one. Um, and I think there was a, a healthy respect, but I think Chris became very frustrated very quickly in that it, it very quickly became apparent to him that he was possibly the most important person on the programme, but his salary didn't perhaps reflect that. The script editors are what the showrunners of today are now called, you know, um, Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis. They were the people driving the creative side of the programme forward, uh, whereas producers generally were there to make sure that the studios were booked, the budgets were met, the directors were brought on board, uh, and that the, um, the whole show went along and I think Chris felt undervalued not necessarily by John but by the BBC as a whole and decided that he would chance his arm a little bit and ask for his contribution to be more recognised financially than it was and they said thanks but no thanks and so he decided to just bow out and do other things which is fair enough I mean everybody has a perceived value to their work and if it's not met then they go and do something else eric came in on the strength of his script for the visitation which i think is a very solid workman-like first attempt at writing doctor who i think um you know that that would have made people sit up and get noticed and he very quickly followed that up with her shock which was um you know one of the highlights of uh davison's uh, era i think mm. And I think he was energised by the challenge of being the script editor on Doctor Who, although I think he very quickly found it a very tiring process in, in that um, by then John was of the opinion that the old school writers that he'd used early on, like um, Terence Sticks and David Fisher, uh, were not to be asked back and getting people like Robert Holmes um, involved again in Doctor Who was a complete no-no and until you know some time later when they were thinking about the 20th anniversary and a lot of the writers that John had bought in with Chris Bidmead like Johnny Byrne I don't think um, Eric really got on well with um, or Stephen Gallagher um, so he, he had to cast about and try and find new people to write for the series and got frustrated that not many writers that wanted to work on Doctor Who were of the canterbury felt were adequate to work on doctor who and i think he got very very frustrated very very quickly uh, and when davison left his antipathy towards colin baker as the sixth doctor i think affected his judgment in how he constructed uh, and commissioned scripts i've had to sit through season 22 a number of times quite reason recently and it seems to me that there's something very strange going on in that season in the way the stories, I mean, they, they had to restructure the whole thing anyway for the 45 minute episodes, which didn't help, but the, the, just the, the approach to the series seemed to change then. So I wouldn't even say Eric Saywood's time as script editor is a single consistent entity. I think there's the Davison um, Saywood and then there's the Colin Baker Saywood and the Colin Baker Saywood has all sorts of problems, which were, you know, exacerbated by the, the cancellation, the postponement, and the general nightmare of 
the production of season 23, which just lurched from crisis to crisis to crisis. And I think he also was very badly affected by Robert Holmes's death. I think he felt a degree, a large degree of personal responsibility, none of which was was at all justified. He, you know, he was not responsible for Robert's illness, but he felt he was, and he felt responsible to a degree to Robert dying. And uh, he was in a toxic working environment at that point, and the whole thing just fell apart. And the series unquestionably suffered because of it. And I don't think John particularly handled it as well as he could, but he was trying to make the best of it with all of the problems that were being thrust upon him. And, and Sayward walking out was just, John got on with it. You can say what you like about the results, but you know there were six months when Doctor Who was just one man, John Nathan Turner. You know, Andrew Cartmel didn't come on board until late 86. So for, for most of 1986, it was just John in the production office with his production secretaries trying to make the best of a job he, by that time, really wanted to be done with, get out of. He desperately wanted to walk away from Doctor Who at the end of season 23. Thought he was, thought he was done, thought he was out the door and was dragged back to it. So Andrew Cartmel then comes in, and I think by that point, John is very disenchanted with Doctor Who and doesn't really stick his oar into the scripting process as much as he had done with Chris and with Eric. And Andrew then has more of a free hand, has a pool of young writers who he encourages and definitely changes the tone of Doctor Who. And that's how it went for the next three years. And I think you could see that there were signs of an improvement. Now you've you've touched on the cancellation. You said at the at the start of the interview that Doctor Who was held in high regard. I think I think you mentioned uh, at the time that John Nathan Turner took over. I mean, it was doing well in the ratings. Uh, I think the people at the top were were, were quite happy with it being in the schedule. Uh, over the, the 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 four, five, six years up until. The you know the temp the, the the temporary cancellation we'll, we'll, we'll call it um, from looking at the paperwork and your own experience in, in other you know other stuff that you've done in terms of your research just for the audience where was the show immediately prior to you know the cancellation uh, being announced well, I think John was more or less making the show on autopilot and he was being a bit diluted in his um day-to-day running of the program simply by going to so many American conventions in 1984 when the first Colin Baker season was in production and that season also coincided with uh Jonathan Powell uh coming in as the head of department there at the BBC and it's very clear that Jonathan Powell had no time for Doctor Who he had no time for John um and really actively disliked the series. And Michael Grade came in as um, the big boss of BBC One some months after that. And while Michael wasn't anti-Doctor Who, I don't think, um, and I have the benefit of seeing something you haven't in, in that I've um, seen his interview for the season 22 Blu-ray box set, um, Michael put up no resistance to the idea of ditching Doctor Who from the BBC schedules. I mean, Michael was very much a TV pragmatist and he thought the money could be better spent elsewhere. Uh, And a programme that had had a 22-year run at that point had had a very good innings. Um, I don't think he was at all prepared for the 
publicity and the furore that the cancellation um, generated, neither was Jonathan Powell, but um, they both could see what other controllers and other head of departments had perhaps not or been blind to or were happy just to wave away in that Doctor Who was treading water. It was being made the same as it had been certainly since the early 70s. Um, the production process had evolved a little beyond the 60s, but it hadn't it hadn't evolved dramatically. And uh, a lot of the stories that year, as I say, they were struggling with the 45 minute format. Um, the focus of a lot of the scripting was very odd, I thought. Um, the focus wasn't really the Doctor. The Doctor wasn't written too sympathetically. Oh. Um, John had made a, a horrendous um, schoolboy error in insisting on Colin Baker's costume being as awful and as gaudy mm. as it mm. was. And it just took away any possibility of the character being taken seriously. You tune into an episode of Doctor Who in tom baker's era and you can you know you can ignore the daleks or the mandrels you can see it's a serious piece of drama or trying to be um whereas it's just not like that in colin's um seasons unfortunately mm. and the costume has to take a lot of the responsibility but the scripts weren't helping no and it was very insular looking wasn't it at the time like it just seemed to be pandering to the fans you know lots of continuity and especially like attack of the Cybermen, where you sort of had to know some of the back history of some stories to sort of get across you know what the intent of it was that was i think doctor who can be as guilty of, of that today i mean uh, I, I sat through Flux and I hadn't got a clue what I've watched. I still <laughs> we're still trying to work it out ourselves, mate. <laughs> and yes. I think should I have been making notes during Jody's first story a few years ago? I mean, it, it just lost me. So yeah, I, I, but you know, don't forget in Tom Baker's first season they had Daleks, they had some Tyrants, they had Cybermen. It wasn't insular then. They just mm. used the old monsters in a, a new and interesting and. Um, captivating way and i don't think you can say the same for season 22 i was going to ask richard and i suppose it's a question that you can't really answer at this distance but had jnt had the the same script scripting background as some of his predecessors i mean do you think that some of these issues you know the relationship issues he had with saywood some of the the issues with you know the, the scripting of the show and the approach of the show especially during the the colin baker era could have been overcome if John had come through a different route to get to where he was in the BBC. He wouldn't have been a production unit manager. He might have been a script editor. Um, he might have taken a whole different direction, and it, it would have maybe formed him into a different person. So I don't know that you could bolt on that aspect to John mm. and try and extrapolate something. John was what John was. And you mentioned during uh, mentioned with one of your earlier answers that. Um, in that period, uh, after Colin Baker had effectively been sacked and Eric Sayward had walked out the door in a fury, uh, that John uh, was effectively, it was a one-man show uh, for, for, for much of the, you know, 1986, I believe he said. Um, how did he manage to cope with putting it out a new season, uh, knowing that the show was not, was, was effectively, you know, uh, frowned upon by the people who were in charge? How did he manage to cope and, and bring something to the screen, regardless of what you think of the quality or anyone thinks of the quality? Uh, just by just putting his head down, I think. Uh, mm. I, 
Eric walked out just as I think Mind Warp was going into the studio. Mysterious Planet was done and dusted. Mind Warp was just going into production. I think the Vervoid scripts had just arrived from Pip and Jane, although Eric, you know, didn't really want them to be commissioned. But they'd done something that Chris Midmead and so many other writers hadn't done, and that, that was to fill that slot in the season. They'd been trying to get some workable scripts for the episodes nine through to um, 12 for months and months, and so many people had let them down. So I, I, I think John just, he knew enough about how Doctor Who was made, how the BBC worked. He could just get on with it. It might not be great, but he had to have something to show at 5.15 on a Saturday tea time. So the, I mean, the only thing you can say is that when Eric withdrew his script for Trial 14, it was solely down to John that Pip and Jane came in and wrote the concluding part of Trial of a Time Lord. What he perhaps should have done is just abandon Robert Holmes's script for part oh. 13 and say to, to Pip and Jane, right, you've got a clean slate two episodes we've already decided on the locations i'm afraid so we're stuck committed to filming up in stoke at the potteries in a couple of weeks time but apart from that do what you like just let's wrap this story up he should have perhaps done that but instead he he did it the way he did it and it might not have worked particularly well but it worked when jnt took over the program what sort of struck me was that I think in his mind, he probably only wanted to stay on it for a year or two at least. In the background, he was pitching different ideas. I mean, there was a couple that sort of struck out for me was um, Australia's own Junior Little proposing having a chat show uh, with her. But the one that really surprised me was that um, JNT and Peter Greenway's idea of a modern retelling of Sherlock Holmes. Was this constant pitching of ideas for his next projects a normal procedure or a normal thing for BBC producers to do? Or is it only that JNT said, I'm just going to do this for a couple of years and then I want to move on to something else? I think it was very normal for producers to pitch new ideas. Some producers were very successful at pitching new ideas. Um, um, Robert Banks-Stewart, whenever he had an idea, people at the BBC would usually sit up and take notice. Um, you know, and we had Shoestring and we had Bergerac because of that. And I think John, it might not have been explicitly part of his job description, but saw it as something he was expected to do is come up with new ideas to throw at his head of department in the hope that somebody would go, oh, yeah, that's a, yeah, let's have a discussion about that. But I think the BBC was changing a little bit at the time and where you could do a deal with a, a breakdown sketched on the back of a fag packet in the 70s, uh, the BBC was moving a bit more towards a structured commissioning process in, in the 80s. Maybe John could have got a few of those ideas to fly, but a lot of his ideas were were not that great, I don't think. And I think you needed the wow factor um, in any pitch that you were doing. If you've got somebody's ear, like the, the the controller of BBC One, who you're meeting on a regular basis to discuss the scripts of your current project, you really got to up your game to try and get them interested in commissioning, um, you know, something else from you, in the hope that they'll go, yeah, fine, and you can take over this new program that you've developed, and we'll get. Bob Smith in to do Doctor Who next year. Um, John was never able to do that. I don't know this, but I, I think perhaps John just was not popular amongst his peers at the BBC for whatever reason. Oh. The the pictures that he put together, the documentation 
was that included in the in the artifacts that you that you have at all, or is this basically, as you said, written on the back of a fag packet somewhere? Is it sort of more detailed briefs uh, kicking around? Well, there's a, a whole host of documentation I drew from from the book, a lot of which came from um, John's archive, which um, was passed to us by Stephen Cranford. But there's a lot of documentation in the BBC's written archive, uh, a lot of which I've had access to over the years when I was doing the production subtitles for the DVDs. And mm. um, obviously we've got the curated PDFs that Richard Bignall puts together for the Blu-ray releases. So I was able to skim through all of the documents that Richard had found for seasons 18, 19, 24 and 26. So that helped fill some gaps. There's paperwork from other sources as well. So it, it wasn't 100% all from John's own archive. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember precisely where the sources were for each each one, but there were sources. They were, they were written down somewhere and usually dated. Um, and if they were dated, you know, I could I could include them. I, when reading the book, when he's talking about Logopolis, he was sounding out uh, having uh, Jeannie Little sending out the dates. I'm convinced that she was being targeted almost for uh, appearing as Auntie Vanessa. In oh, Logopolis. yes. Yes, was, yes. She was Australian, mate. She She'll was. <laughs> yeah. I don't know anything about her. I have found a few clips of her on YouTube. Yes. 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 <laughs> I mean, obviously, anyone who's interested in Jenny Little, I can find clips, as you say, on YouTube. There was a, a really nice documentary, I think, Mark, it's on Australian Story on the yeah, ABC, right. yeah. which um, is quite affecting. Uh, it looks at her, her last years and her and her decline. Um, but uh, yeah, she would have been definitely something, a bit of an eye opener for the, for <laughs> the for British the viewers at the time. <laughs> I mean, I must be honest, what I don't know is how, how she came. Uh, on John's radar in the first place. Obviously, their uh, friendship predated his rise to producership uh, uh, on Doctor Who in 1979. They'd, they'd obviously known each other before then, and mm. you know, there's a lot of correspondence between the two of them. Um, John would write uh, write to her in Australia and was very supportive of her career, and was I've heard it said he was instrumental in getting her a spot on the Parkinson show over here. Might be wrong on that, which was kind of her her big break into the UK, which perhaps her last break into the UK as well. Looking through the, the documentation as you did, uh, Richard, you know, through expenses and receipts and, and, and letters and stuff like that, what sense, if, if any, did you get of John Nathan Turner from that paperwork? I mean, I suppose a lot of it is dry material, but what sense, if you, if you can sort of think of any, did you get of, of, of him as, uh, you know, the man himself? I think he prided himself in what he saw as his professionalism. Mm-hmm. Um, whether he was as professional as he should have been is another question, but I think he, he knew what he needed to do and how he needed to do it, uh, you know, how to dot the I's and cross the T's. E- everything in terms of production paperwork is quite quite meticulous in terms of booking studios and booking directors and everything is is quite meticulous in that respect. Don't, I don't really know how you can get a measure of anybody from reading their paperwork and their expense claims, to be honest. Uh, I think you need to fill the gaps in from other areas. As you said before, Richard, um, John Nathan Turner was desperate to get out, you know, to leave the show and, 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 and do something else. By the time we get to sort of 1989, it's obviously with the benefit of hindsight, it seems clear that the BBC was looking to euthanise the show effectively. But there, there was talk of contracting it out. But John Nathan Turner was, 
uh, effectively kept out of the loop of all those discussions. Is that correct? It, it very much looks like it from what I can see. And when I I have uh, did speak to John a few times about this uh, uh, when our paths did cross in the nineties, and I think he was very much not not in the loop at all. Um, it was a question of is the show coming back as a BBC production every year? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. 1989. No, it isn't. Thank you very much. Um, we'll, we'll let you know. And obviously at the end of the financial year, John was told he was going to be made redundant and given effectively six months notice. I think it was. Um, so he, he was literally twiddling his thumbs for most of 1990 sat in a very deserted and lonely production office which must have been heartbreaking for him. Absolutely demoralising, isn't it? Mm. But yeah. in terms of what the BBC were planning for Doctor Who, I think it's very clear they, they knew it wasn't going to come back in 1990. They wanted uh, a new series made by an outside production company for 1991 and uh, were not adverse to perhaps getting Sylvester back or Sophie back, although they would have had to renegotiate those contracts. But... It was completely to be in the hands of the new producers. That was probably going to be Verity Lambert uh, for Verity Lambert's production company. Whether she'd have had any hands-on uh, involvement in the programme is unknowable. Uh, but the whole thing was scuppered by BBC Enterprises basically welching on the deal. They thought they could, uh, or they were under the impression they, they wouldn't have to bankroll as much of the series production as they were being asked to do. Uh, and they, they said no. Uh, and the whole deal collapsed. I don't think the BBC was, was, slide, was saying, oh, we'll kill Doctor Who in 1989. We'll just tell everybody we'll, we'll bring it back. Hmm. There might be a, a longer gap. I don't think that was a, a, a play for time or trying to deflect attention. I think there were serious or semi-serious efforts to try and get something into, into production um, in 1990. So a, a new series of as many as 20 episodes, although possibly it could have only been 14. I think they might have made 20 episodes and held six back um, for the 1991 season. But there was a there was a desire, I think, for Doctor Who to come back after, after they'd set it up as an independent production. But because of the BBC Enterprises situation, um, the whole thing just fell apart. And then it was too late to bring it back in-house, at least for that financial year. And once you can't do it for 1990 or 1991, and, you, and you've, you've just got out of the habit of making Doctor Who. Mm. And then all of a sudden, there's a guy in America who starts banding about the name of Steven Spielberg. Hmm. Yeah. Think, well, okay, let them have it for a bit. After having trawled through all that information, Richard, and putting the book together uh, and sort of, you know, imbibing that era, has your opinion or attitude of John Nathan Turner and his era changed as a result of all that work that you've done or has it reinforced you know you, your, your previous opinions tell us a little bit about that I wouldn't say it's changed it's maybe evolved a little bit I can remember having a conversation with John um, at the end of one of the panopticon conventions in the early 90s when we were both a wee bit tipsy shall we say <laughs> um, and to the great amusement of the people, I was sitting with, I tried to explain very patiently to John where he'd gone wrong. Oh, <laughs> He took it rather well at the time. And I look back and cringe at my arrogance and presumptuousness. Um, 
at the time. I think um, what what the putting the book together has taught me is that John was very passionate about Doctor Who and always thought he was doing the right thing. I don't think he listened to enough people at certain times where he could possibly have been persuaded to do something a little differently. Uh, he was a bit headstrong in that respect. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing either. If, if you're convinced that you know what you're doing and, and that that is the right thing to do. Um, and it's all, it's really a, a down to personal perception. I think there's a lot of criticism that's come John's way over the years for what he did as a producer. And I think a lot of it is justified, but nobody ever sets out to make a bad piece of television or a bad program. Um, certainly since I started making documentaries and programs myself, um, some of which I'm very, very proud of and others I look at and think, Christ, he could have done that better. Nobody mm. ever sets out to do something deliberately bad, mm. but it's just an act of compromise every step of the way in production. Um, and those compromises sometimes scupper your best intentions. And I think if John had been a bit more stronger in some areas, he wouldn't have made the compromises that he did. But he was always trying to do the best for Doctor Who, I think. And finally then, before we move on to a couple of other topics... What do you hope readers will get out of reading this book? I mean, for, for me, it, again, as I said before, it's a really fascinating look back at how television was made uh, of our, you know, ostensibly our favourite show back in the 80s. But what do you hope readers get out of it, um, Richard? Well, precisely that. I think anybody with an interest in how Doctor Who was made uh, in the 80s would find the book um, hopefully uh, an interesting read, an insightful read, might have some new information in there. But I also think, and it's something I'd never really done before, we're all very familiar with the wonderful archive articles that Andrew Pixley did for Doctor Who magazine, for example, oh. where it takes a story and, and sets out from, you know, the, the first pitch of the script to the last edit in the edit suite, how that story is made. But seeing how a whole season is put together and how the stories overlap and how problems or issues with a story has a knock-on effect throughout the season and then seeing how the seasons are all put together over the decade paints a picture which I don't think I'd ever appreciated before in the complexity um, of the production of Doctor Who and what John had to contend with and what he did uh, as part of his day-to-day -day management of the series and that contextualization uh, hopefully is something that's quite unique, hopefully. Well, I think I think it is. I mean, as you were saying, I mean, the Andrew Pixley archives uh, were uh, splendid in, the, in terms of the depths that they go to, but there was they were issue to issue. As you've said and what you've done is you've, you've put that all together in, in one between two covers. And um, I think that, as you say, that contextualisation will bring to a lot of people the size of the task that John Nathan Turner had in you know putting out a season of television year after year after year and and for that for bringing that all together and doing it in a entertaining and comprehensible manner I, I i can only take my hat off to you and congratulate you for it absolutely no thank you thank you very much well i'm glad you enjoyed it hope other people do too
Richard, obviously this book is not the only thing that you've, you've been involved with with Doctor Who. I mean, in the past, you've, uh, as I mentioned at the start, you've written uh, a biography effectively of, of, uh, of Robert Holmes. Um, how was writing that biography different or similar to putting this book together? That was quite an interesting project in that I didn't, I'd always been a great fan of Robert's work and I'd done a documentary on the Two Doctors DVD about Robert's Doctor Who stories and at the time had uh, met up with his daughter and gone down to his cottage and looked through his study and gone through his scripts and thought that was just so evocative of his life. And I was trying to get in touch with her again about 10 years later, I can't remember for what now, and found out that she'd died. And um, Robert's son had died, Robert's wife had died. And it suddenly occurred to me that there were a lot of people that were no longer around that knew who Robert Holmes was as a person. And I thought it'd be, if we don't do it now and interview the people that we can and get the stories about Robert's life, the opportunity would would be gone. Um, So I decided I'd better do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that was was a book I had no idea of of what the story was until I wrote it. Uh, Whereas Wiped, I knew exactly what was going to be on page one and what was going to be on the final page and what was going to be on every page in between. I went into the Robert Holmes biography quite blind. It was a it was a project of discovery, finding the paperwork, um, putting the pieces together, working out what he was doing and when and how and what the problems were. Um, and that was a very enjoyable project because of it. Not that White wasn't, but it was it was a different type of project. Mm. Um, but having done that, I. I remember telling myself, right, you're never going to write another book again after that. <laughs> How did that work out for you? <laughs> Badly. <laughs> well, certainly a life, uh, Robert Holmes, A Life in Words is, is still available for purchase. So um, I you know, obviously encourage everyone to go out. Robert Holmes is, you know, one of the key writers of, this, uh, of, the, of the classics series and mm. I think it provided inspiration for a couple of the showrunners uh, who, who've worked on the new series. So, uh, definitely go out and search for that one. Now, uh, Richard, uh, now that we've got you on the uh, on the podcast, my my and Mark's love of missing episodes, uh, you're our man for this. You've obviously wiped. Uh, I managed to pur- purchase both editions of that, so you can thank me later for that. Or as we but- call it, the Bible, Rob. <laughs> With regards to missing episodes and your journey through investigating uh, and writing about that, I remember you wrote a series of articles for DWM, I think, in the 90s, which I believe were the eventual catalyst for wiped. Um, how has your perspective for the hunt of missing episodes changed since, say, the 1980s? Um, and how do you believe that fandom's engagement with the issue has similarly changed? Um, I've always been um, obviously interested in the whole subject of missing episodes and trying to work out why they were missing in the first place, because mm. that was the big, I, I just, it, it made no sense to me why, why you'd have episodes one, two, and three of the 10th planet and not episode four, mm. how you could get episode four of the demons in color, but not the rest. Um, I couldn't see the rhyme or reason. And I, I, I wanted to make sense of something which didn't seem to have any sense to it. Um, so the whole in, in, investi- 
investigation of why episodes were missing and how episodes had been recovered and found and the stories behind all of those recoveries were um, something that um, always greatly fascinated me and grandiosely I thought I was the person best placed to tell those stories and put it all together in a book. My enthusiasm for the subject has been diminished in recent years I have to say by the 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 aftermath of the whole omni rumor mm. uh, rubbish that w- went on in 2012 2013 um, I've come away from the whole experience quite I've just had enough of it really I don't think it did anybody much credit um no, and uh, a lot of the a lot of the the discussion became very toxic, and for a variety of reasons, things couldn't be said at the time, um, which might have rode back on some of the expectations. But it is what it is. The majority of previous returns have come from overseas archives. Do you think that um, we may have reached an endpoint in those types of returns, and really, it's or well, realistically, assuming there's anything out there, it really would be from film collectors themselves. I think we'll never know when the last missing episode has been recovered. There mm-hmm. could, there could always be 97 missing episodes. There could be 87. There could be 77. There could be seven. Who knows? Um, that's kind of the joy of it, and also the curse of it, because you're always looking over the hill and over the horizon to see what what could be coming i think realistically as the years go by the chances of material being discovered reduces exponentially what we do know is that a lot of stuff went walkies out of the bbc in the late 70s people rescued films from skips films sometimes didn't even make the skips um and we know from the returns that came back from uh private collectors uh, in the in the 80s that there was material that was out there and we might not have found the last of it we I mean uh, Paul Venetius is a very good friend of mine we um, we still meet up every so often for a beer and I know he's said on record that he thinks he knows where two episodes are but he also hasn't seen them and Paul has always said I don't believe it until I've seen it and uh, until he opens those those cans on on those shelves, we won't know for certain. So you never know. I mean, there, there could be a couple more out there. There could be a dozen more. There could be there could be who knows what out there. But while they're out there, they're out there, and if they never come back, we'll never know, and we'll be none the wiser. Exactly. It's not going to change anything, is it? Really? I mean, no. Even if we did know for certain, mm. and you know, I can categorically say I know of nothing that isn't on the shelves of the BBC. I don't know what Paul thinks is on some collector's shelves. I don't know if anyone else, uh, you know, thinks they know where missing episodes are. If they do, I certainly don't. So, um, and the pool is becoming ever more smaller of uh, people to try and recover this stuff from. So who knows? What a cheery way to end that particular discussion. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say, stay tuned. Lift it up a bit. <laughs> so Richard, um, you've been a project manager 
uh, on the Blu-ray releases over the last year or two. Can you just give us a little bit of a flavour of what you do, uh, what does a, a project manager do, um, and some of the stuff that you've worked on um, that you've been particularly proudest of? Uh, well, I was made project manager when season 23 was just being pulled together. So that was the first box set uh, that I was involved with. And what uh, what my role is, is basically overseeing the delivery from uh, Peter Crocker and Mark Ayres of the restored episodes and uh, from the various uh, producers, the new what we call VAM, value added material. It's a horrible word, but that's what it's called, the new VAM um, that Russell Minton commissions. Uh, some of that he makes himself, like behind the sofas. Some of that he commissions out to people like Chris Chapman and Paul Venesis and Steve Broster. Um, for new documentaries, he gets Ed Stradling to pull together the, uh, the trails and continuities, um, the new photo galleries that get commissioned, and I oversee the delivery of all those items uh, and liaising with the facilities housings to make sure that they pass the, what we call the QC, the quality control, that there, there are no bad edits or that the, uh, basically that they're okay technically to, to go out on the, the Blu-rays. And I mean, editorially, it's all down to Russell but occasionally I'll flag something up and say, are you aware of this? So it's Russell's baby basically. And he's ably assisted by Pete McTighe and, and Pete's put together really the program for the Blu-rays where he's decided where all of the old DVD VAM is now going to be rehoused. As you're probably aware, um, there are things that say came out on the trial of a Time Lord DVD box set that aren't on the season 23 Blu-ray uh, release but the the objective is to put everything out that was on DVD onto a Blu-ray somewhere if we can. There are a couple of issues with rights on a few things, but the, the majority of of the old VAM will appear at some point on, on one of the, the, the box sets. So um, I'm the person that overviews the project. Russell tells me what's going on each disc. If it's old uh, DVD VAM, um, I arranged to get that out of the BBC Studios archive um, and redigitized for the Blu-ray. Uh, the new VAM that comes in, um, make sure that that hits its delivery deadlines um, and that it um, passes the, the QC process. And the same for the restored episodes from, from Peter and Mark. Like the production of Doctor Who in the 80s, they, the projects do tend to overlap. So it's very seldom that you're clear of one project and are waiting for the next one. Um, there's a bit of a bit of a production line on the range. So that's all I can say about the future. Uh, the production line is still producing. Keep feeding the machine, mate. And in terms of season 22, which, is, which has been announced as the next Blu-ray uh, set, could you give us any sort of subtle hints or anything about what's on there or what we can look forward to? The season 22 Blu-ray set, as you say, it's, um, it's coming out shortly seen all of the items that are going to be on there and there's some fantastic new uh, 
programs and documentaries that that have been put together like all of the 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 box sets that I've been involved in it's as comprehensive as we could possibly make it probably my least favorite season of Doctor Who is season 24 but when that box set came out the amount of material that we got on there I think was mm. I, I thought it was fantastic very very comprehensive and especially the, the new documentaries on there were brilliant and even the, the studio footage of the and I'll use it in air quotes here regeneration of uh, Sylvester McCoy is very interesting mm. um, and, and there's plenty of that that people won't have seen before uh, on the season 22 set. There are three new In Conversations that Paul Benice has done, uh, one with Nicola Bryant, one with Colin Baker, and one with Michael Grade. And personally for me, I found the Michael Grade one to be far more entertaining and enlightening than uh, I, I thought would be possible. It does bring a slightly new perspective on, on the events of 1985 and, and what was going on at the time. So I think that'll be a bit of an eye-opener for people. Like all of the box sets, it's it's packed full of goodies, and I don't think people will be disappointed. Um, if you're not a fan of Season 22, this this probably won't make you a fan of Season 22. But <laughs> like like Season 24, I, ha- I think it does help contextualise it. I certainly came out of Season 24 with a different opinion of uh, most of the stories mm. than I had going into it. And, and the same possibly could be said for season 22 my opinion of season 14 hasn't changed I think uh, I think you're fine and I've always loved season 17 I mean that was a joy to work on that series I think people will be quite uh, quite impressed with season 22 I hope they will just to bring it back full circle to the the, the, um, the reason for the interview I'm sure JNT would be surprised and delighted uh, oh, that, yes. that, thank you very much <laughs> that such uh, love and attention has been uh, lavished on his particular era of the show. So, Richard, uh, look, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, the John Nathan Turner Production Diary, 1979 to 1990, is currently available for pre-order uh, at the Telos Publishing website. That's telos.co.uk, or just Google Telos, Pub- Telos Publishing and you'll find it. Uh, £19.99 of your money. Uh, I'm not quite sure what that'll be of our money, but um, it's been published on the 1st of May, the website says, in 2022. So, Uh, As Mark said before, I think uh, if you can pre-order this book directly from the publisher, uh, it puts more money into their pockets. It puts more money into the hardworking writers' pockets. uh, And that ensures that uh, more of these books, more of these really in-depth, fascinating examinations of particular eras, uh, you know, there's more more of that sort of thing is made possible. So, Richard, thank you very much for being on on the podcast. And we look forward to the book coming out and to being a great success. Thank you for inviting me and, and thank you for all your questions. If I can just make one quick point, the 1st of May 2022 is very sadly the 20th anniversary of John's death. Oh. I think that was deliberately chosen by the publishers as the date to release the book. John was somebody I, I got to know very briefly in the 90s and I hope it does him justice. It definitely will. Thanks very much, Richard, and hopefully speak to you again very, very shortly. Thank you. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with with you again soon.